Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Hello, Cosmic Journeyers. This is Lorna Liana, and welcome back to another episode of Entheo Nation, where we explore the realms of psychedelic science, modern shamanism, and contemporary visionary culture. One of my passions in life is observing and participating in the evolution of ayahuasca shamanism and Amazonian culture. There is an indigenous cultural renaissance happening, folks, and I find it to be most evident in Brazil. You see, this interest that Westerners have in ayahuasca is creating a lot of movement in the Amazon. Foreigners traveling to tribal territories, indigenous leaders traveling overseas to lead ceremonies. And what I'm seeing blossom is a reclaiming of indigenous heritage and embracing of old traditions. Why this is important is that for nearly 500 years, the indigenous people were persecuted, punished for speaking their own language, prevented from marrying within their own tribe, and evangelized. This campaign of cultural eradication made it clear that the indigenous ways were inferior. Now in Brazil, I see tribes who have lost so much, their language, knowledge, and songs, reach out to other tribes who have preserved more of their cultural heritage and ask to be taught the old ways again. When the son of the chief of the Puyanawa tribe, who was also the pastor of the evangelical church in their village, decided to bring back old tribal tradition, he sought guidance from the Ashaninka shamans. Now, the Ashaninkas really have a very different culture and uh, speak a totally different language from the Puyanawas, yet they were able to align to teach the Puyanawas how to make medicine and hold ceremonies. So he gave up his role as the pastor of the church and left, and half his congregation followed him to revive their spiritual heritage. Now they hold ceremonies twice a week to sing, drink medicine, share hape, which is their herbal snuff, on a white sand arena under the stars. This is one of the effects that the growing popularity of ayahuasca in the north is having on the culture of the south. Now, in this interview with Rak Razam, author of the book Aya Awakenings and creator of the documentary of the same name, Rak discusses why ayahuasca is increasing in popularity, the shamanic revival that is occurring in Western culture, and how this is shaping a new cultural paradigm in the 21st century. Check out the resources mentioned in the episode show notes at entheonation.com slash eight. If you would like to receive a free transcript of this episode, it is super easy. Simply text Entheonation, that is E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Just reply to the SMS with your best email to get access to premium content that's only available to bona fide citizens of Entheonation.
If you like this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would take the time to rate and review this show in iTunes, as this will increase Entheo Nation's visibility in the iTunes marketplace and help get this life-changing information out to the people who need it. Now on to the show. Hello there, amazing visionaries. This is Lorna Liana, and I'm here today with Rak Razam, who is a leading experiential journalist uh, who enjoys writing about and helping shape the emergence of a new cultural paradigm in the 21st century. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book, Aya Awakenings, a shamanic odyssey, and also the companion volume of interviews, called The Ayahuasca Sessions, uh, which you can check out at www.ayathebook.com. That's www.ayathebook.com. He is a frequent lecturer on ayahuasca and the shamanic revival that is sweeping the West. He wrote, produced, and co-directed the groundbreaking new visionary documentary, Aya Awakenings, which you can check out at www.ayaya-awakenings.com, and he leads ayahuasca retreats in Peru. Uh, If you want to find out more about these retreats, you can check out www.ayaya-awakenings.com slash retreats. And so I'm really overjoyed to have Rak Razam with us today because we're going to talk about um, this shamanic revival in the West that I find so intriguing. So before we dive into that conversation, I'd love to ask you, Rack, what exactly is shamanism for the benefit of those people out there listening who don't know? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, it depends on who you ask, I guess, these days. If you ask indigenous peoples all around the world, they would say that the practice of shamanism is equivalent, I guess, to a medicine person and the role that a shaman used to play and still plays in some indigenous tribe around the world is basically a healer. It's a healer that may work uh, through different modalities like trance and dance, but largely it has been uh, healers that work with medicinal plants and herbs and things like that. The Western anthropological understanding of shaman has quite eroded over the decades, and by the 1950s, what the, uh, the word shaman was being based upon was an understanding of Siberian shamanism, and uh, we've basically, in the West, appropriated the term shamanism and exported it back onto the medicine people of, of the world. And, you know, the majority of, of medicine people across the world don't call themselves shamans. In Peru, they call themselves curanderos. That's from the Spanish, it means to heal. There might be uh, brujos or sorcerers. There might be taters. But every, every region has their own language for it. But essentially, it's men and women uh, across the world who are in service to their communities and are healing people. That might be with medicinal plants, but it also works on a spiritual level where sometimes they are responsible for sort of the the spiritual well-being of the tribe as well. And so in the West, we have largely forgotten this and we have glorified the term shaman. And because of the absence of that archetype in our culture, basically because Western culture eradicated the medicine people over many hundreds of years, we have to some level glorified this archetype and it's become to mean a little bit more of a mystical, sorcerer, wizard, sort of Hollywood archetype, which we're relearning. We're relearning what that means in Western culture. Yeah, it's kind of interesting when I uh, spend time with indigenous healers and plant medicine people in uh, 
uh, the different tribes that I've gotten to know in the Amazon regions, I've, I've been to Peru and Ecuador and uh, Brazil, it's interesting how they refer to themselves as shamans just to be understood by Westerners. <laughs> Even though, you know, it's not, as you mentioned, it's not really a traditional term for them. It was co-opted from the Siberians. I'm curious to know, in terms of your research of the topic, why do you think ayahuasca shamanism is so popular now? Well, it's a very good question, and, and there are many different plant entheogens. The word entheogen itself uh, was coined in the early 80s by a group of academics to distance the culture from the stigma of the word psychedelic. And entheogens is sort of more targeted towards plant-based medicines and sacramental usage of psychoactive plants. And ayahuasca is predominantly amongst those plants getting a lot of media attention at the moment, precisely because of its, of its ability to heal. Ayahuasca is legal in many parts throughout South America and in, even in the world, as the, uh, in the gray areas of the law. But it has the tradition. It has you know, thousands of years of usage in the Amazonian basin. It has the traditions around it. It has the container of the ceremony and of the central role of the shaman or the curandero. And so it's not just the ayahuasca, it's actually this sense of legacy and of the elders of the tribes of the earth and of the caretakers of the land who are bringing back the knowledge of ayahuasca. And there are many, many different other substances like psilocybin mushrooms, uh, salvia divinorum, peyote, San Pedro cactus, all of them are on the rise, but ayahuasca is sort of getting the media attention. And I think that's because it has so many safeguards within it. It can't be used recreationally, not easily, because it is such a purgative and a, you know, <laughs> you, you such vomit. a party foul. Could you imagine uh, your friends I, I would say, imagine. I can't take you anywhere. All you do is projectile vomit when we're just trying to have an all-night dance party. <laughs> well, you know, it, that brings up a really interesting point, because a lot of the Western contact with mind-altering substances has been recreationally or it has been in the context of something like the 60s with LSD or man-made chemicals which are very very different from the plant-based entheogens. The plant-based entheogens like ayahuasca demand not just your respect but they demand a relationship. They demand you to give something of yourself and we're so used to in the West this idea of medicines that a doctor gives us like a pill and you take that and the pill does all the work. You just sit back and this medicine will make you better. Ayahuasca doesn't make you better on its own. Ayahuasca in concert with the diet and with going uh, into cleansing and to removing yourself from your world and focusing on your problems and your issues, ayahuasca opens up your own potential for healing. They've done recent studies with MRI scans and EEG scans and they've discovered that ayahuasca, as well as uh, other psychedelics, turn off the default mode network of the brain, these clustered regions of the brain which are involved with the sense of identity and ego and making us who we are on this level of consciousness. And when those are switched off, it's actually our own brain that is opening up our own mind that is opening up to reveal the capabilities it has within itself and to connect to larger facets of being. And so ayahuasca often you know, engages your own subconscious and unconscious in your conscious mind and it asks you where your problems are. Like, you know, you engage in a dialogue, but it, it forces you to see yourself and it doesn't do the work on its own. And so it's very unlike the Western understanding of medicines. A lot of the indigenous people, when they say la medicina, when they say medicine, they mean something different from what we 
represented in ways as in and as an implant. It's not just a neurochemical. There is a spirit or an aliveness, a being in the plant, and that is the being that we have to establish a relationship with on our spiritual level. So it's not just a flat sort of um, Western Henry Ford assembly line of, of chemicals. It's something that you need to engage with in a spiritual level. And that is beyond the Western paradigm, but it is fast coming into the Western understanding, this idea of spirituality, not just as an airy-fairy hippie thing, but as a level of being on how we can practice and sharpen and tune into it and how we engage with our spirituality for our health and our well-being. You know, it's kind of interesting how you uh, described ayahuasca and the relationship with uh, plant medicines and how it's so different from the, uh, uh, you know, psychedelic drugs of the 60s, for example. So um, often when I speak to people about ayahuasca, the very first question that I uh, receive is usually, is it anything like LSD? And, you know, if I were to describe the difference between LSD and ayahuasca, I'd almost kind of say that, um, for me, LSD shows you the exuberant potentiality of things, like the, um, the, the broad horizon of, you know, expansive, inclusive, um, uh, you know, potentiality and, and human existence. Whereas, you know, with ayahuasca, it will show you that, but it'll also show you what you need to work on in yourself in order to move in that direction. And what one thing that I see with, you know, in, with LSD, and, and, you know, I'm sure that this experience is very different for different people, but for me, I kind of feel like, you know, I see, you know, when I have experienced LSD, I see, wow, you know, anything's possible. We can totally do this, you know. Um, and then the next day, it's kind of like, okay. <laughs> like, you know, it seems like it's so far away from, you know, where I might be at that moment. Whereas with ayahuasca, it almost, you know, always shows me, okay, um, you know, this is the direction you want to go, that, that field of, you know, infinite possibilities. But it's like, okay, these are the things that are blocking you or keeping you from moving in that direction. Here's where you're stuck. Here's where you need to release, you know, what you need to let go of and, you know, mm. and what you need to change. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the differences between ayahuasca and LSD from your experience. Well, there's an interesting uh, cluster of ideas around this, but essentially LSD has been scientifically proven to be an amplifier. And so what it does is it amplifies the senses and even in the psychoactive sense, you're getting more of an experience um, but you're getting, you know, a saturation, a deepening of colors and of nature and of perception and time dilation. But you're still essentially that consciousness. You're still essentially your consciousness altered and perhaps deepened and more. On ayahuasca, it's very different. It's more inward bound and it's more um, exploratory of the own, your own unconscious and your own emotional being and your own, your own journey through life. And it does seem that uh, there is a spirit with ayahuasca and there is sort of a mythology that is arising around ayahuasca as it's incorporated back into the West. In indigenous uh, countries in Peru and through South America, they often call ayahuasca madre or the mother or the grandmother, and there seems to be this energy, a feminine energy around it and a spirit in ayahuasca. Um, that can be true, or it may be some type of projection from the unconscious. Um, but in, essentially, in that relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca, and there does seem to be some type of presence there, which is not present with LSD, um, it seems that the plant spirit is wanting to engage with us and wanting to work on behalf of uh, 
of, of us for our healing. And it seems that the spirit of ayahuasca is an avatar in some sense for the earth herself and, you know, for Mother Earth and Gaia as a, as a concept. And it seems that many of the entheogens uh, are working to um, heal. They're, they're, they're healing plants. They're not just random psychoactives which are used recreationally. They are specifically designed to be taken to either physically heal or to reconnect us to the web of life. And in reconnecting us to the web of life, they heal the spiritual lack or the disconnect that we have been feeling. Now, the original uh, Latin for religion is to reweave or to reconnect. And it makes us ask the question, what are we reconnecting to? You know, we're reconnecting to the original matrix, which is the planetary matrix of Mother Earth, who, you know, both feeds and creates and destroys and has a level of um, spirit and awareness and intelligence to nature herself in, in what she creates, how she creates, how the species interact and cooperate together and how the web of life unfolds as one organism. Now, you may have those type of mental um, understandings on LSD, but it is quite rare to have those type of spiritual connections and those type of, uh, you know, workings on the body to, as you say, clear the blockages. And when the blockages are cleared through modalities like ayahuasca, what is really connecting then is our own innate ability, our bodies and our chakras and our energy systems to plug back into the planetary matrix and to be whole. And that is what to be healed means. It doesn't mean that you get anything more than you have, but it means you have full optimal capabilities of the human body, the human energy system, and the human soul. And then to remember what that really means and how that plugs into nature, I think is part of the great learning of ayahuasca. And it's that coming full circle back to the garden and back to the great green womb where we, where we all began. You know, I really appreciate your thoughts on that because I would say that, you know, in my uh, experiences with LSD, I didn't really feel the presence of a guiding, teaching, healing plant spirit at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree that, you know, for me, the experiences with LSD were really, uh, were can also be really therapeutic and healing, but... Um, yeah, it was much more of an amplifier. It def definitely seemed much more in the intellectual realm rather than in the full body healing realm uh, uh, within which ayahuasca works so well. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, one of the things that I see in the uh, global, international, neo-shamanic world is, um, you know, a tendency towards uh, psychonautism, so to speak, when working with um, mind-expanding substances and even some of these power plants. And, um, you know, one of my favorite books is a book by Daniel Pinchbeck called Breaking Open the Mind. And uh, I kind of see his book, it's almost like uh, a biography of my life in a certain way, but just different. You know, I'm like, wow, this person kind of led a parallel life to me. And, you know, some mm. of the, real, uh, the realizations that he received were very similar to the um, shamanic journey I've been on. Well, one thing that I noticed was that his book was really uh, psychonautically focused, you know, kind of like oriented towards what extreme dimensional realms can you, you know, go to, can you access, you know, uh, through your, you know, consciousness exploration. And for me, I personally don't think that that's the point of it, really. I kind of feel like, you know, for me, the point of working with power plants, working with mind-expanding uh, um, uh, entheogenic medicines is much more 
so a journey inward, a journey back to the earth, not a, you know, how far into the outer world can you get, but like how, you know, how much can you return to Mother Earth? Um, and you know, mm. feeling or recognizing our uh, place in the intrinsic, um, you know, infinite web of life. And I think mm. that's a much more, for me, it's been a much more grounding and holistic experience. I think you're very right. I, uh, when I first went down to Peru uh, eight years ago as a, as a journalist, experiential journalist, documenting ayahuasca culture and this resurgence in interest from Westerners going down, a lot of the curanderos or the shamans that I interviewed and spoke to said that there's a, there is a identifiable uh, target market of people that are going down for physical healing, but the vast majority of Westerners did not have uh, you know, physical ailments, but they, they sensed en masse that they had, there was something missing and there was sort of a spiritual malaise or this, this sense of disconnection, this sense of not belonging or that there was something more and that they were, they were lacking this sense of spirit, this sense of, you know, something they could believe in and connect to and be nurtured by in their lives because Western culture is often reductionist and mechanistic and, uh, you know, doesn't cater to that. So um, when people are learning that reconnection with things like ayahuasca, it's, it's, it's about not focusing just on the mind because the ego is an amazing tool that the ego will, um, it will adapt and it will commodify anything that comes at it. So if shamanism and entheogens and, and psychedelics start to come back into the Western mind frame, the danger is the ego will go, oh yeah, okay, yes, we can work with this and we can use them almost as psychedelic armoring and we can take on board these tools without really changing. And what needs to happen, I believe, you know, in, in the world at the moment is this great rebalancing is going on and we're learning how to re-engineer our consciousness to be sustainable again, to be sustainable in the web of life as a culture within ourselves, within a society, but also with the planet. And to do that, we have to come out of the dominator culture headset and we have to come back into a heart space. And what ayahuasca and antigens are helping us do is not just intellectually explore inner dimensions and the shamanic paradigm and the you know intergalactic cosmos type of deal. Um, they're really bringing us down to not just our own healing, but our own heart space. When I was in uh, the ayahuasca retreats that I led in uh, just last September, I worked with a curandero called Percy Garcia, and he is such a heart-based practitioner and he spent so much time with us trying to make us understand it's not about the head. When you're in these realms, how you navigate is through the heart. You navigate through the realms of the heart and how you feel. It's about feeling and intuition and the subtle energies, which to a large degree the West has forgotten or shut down or atrophied or just not, not, um, not you know, supported. Because so much of our culture is intellectually and aggressively driven towards conquering and action and outcome, we're forgetting that we need to relate to people. We really need to relate to ourselves, to our own needs, to our family's needs, to the tribe and society's needs, and to the planet's needs. And so the, the great thing I think we are in need of healing in the West is we, need, we have a heartache. We have a heartache that many of us are recognizing, and to a large degree, the powers that be are still still not recognizing, they refuse to acknowledge the fact that we have a broken heart in the West and it's our relationship with Mother Earth, our mother and nature and how we be sustainable that we need to heal this relationship from. And the entheogens and ayahuasca can help us remember that we have a heart 
how to use that heart and how to connect with each other. And that is part of the great healing, I think, which is underway in the world at the moment. Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. Our conversation so far, you have brought up the term entheogen and psychedelic a number of times. And one of the things that I um, encounter is, you know, a lot of people don't really know what entheogen actually means and what the difference is between the two. So I'd love if you might explain um, your understanding of um, either term. Yeah, well, originally, as I was saying at the start, the, uh, it was a term coined in the 80s to distance itself from psychedelics, but entheogen is from the Greek, and it means to invoke the divine within. And that can be a contentious sort of uh, term, you know, in the West, because people don't believe in a divine to a large degree, or some people do, but they have, you know, they have uh, brand recognition and brand control over whose divinity means what. But, you know, essentially, it's saying that there is a divine spark within us and that these entheogens are substances which uh, reconnect us to that divine spark in ourselves and in nature. And as I was saying with the scientific uh, discoveries of late with the MRI and the EEG, how they're discovering it turns off these parts of the brain, I think when we turn off those intellectual parts of the brain, what we're reconnecting to is that emotional part or that bit within, we're looking within and we're finding that we we are divine, we, we do have this spark of life, we are created you know, with this purpose and with this spirit within us, and we hunger for authentic connection to other people and other spirit, and, you know, for to be fed by great spirit. And so psychedelic, which I still feel is a very valid term and is coming back to a large degree within the global push for the medicalization of psychedelics, it's essentially still referring to man-made chemicals like uh, LSD and MDMA, which they're using Organizations like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, pioneering lots of legal uh, uh, tests at the moment with doctors around the world for helping treat uh, Iraqi war veterans who have PTSD with MDMA helping or treat LSD. Helping Iraqi for, war veterans with, MD, uh, with MDMA? Yeah, there's a lot of work being done with legal psychedelics in medical case studies at the moment. They're using LSD for... Um, cluster headache alleviation and for uh, psilocybin for uh, cancer patients with um, anxiety and, you know, late terminal patients with uh, alleviating their fear of death. They're, they're utilizing psychedelics in the medical establishment, which is very good and very well. And ayahuasca is also being used in a lot of clinical studies as well. But there's also a larger potential, again, not to intellectualize these substances just as commodities that can be reduced down to a pill like an aspirin or, you know, uh, something like that, um, is that there, there, is a, <clears throat> there is a process at work, both with the psychedelics and the entheogens, where it's, it's moving us and it's engaging with us on a deeper level. And uh, to use them just as medicines on a physical level is to ignore the fact that a lot of the, uh, the problems around health start from a spiritual core, they start from a spiritual um, center, and if we're not centered in our relationship with ourselves and 
our relationship uh, with the earth and where we get our food from, where we're getting our energy sort of in, intake from, then that will result in dis-ease or being out of, out, of, uh, uh, out of center. So psychedelics are still a very valid term is what I'm getting at. Um, and essentially, they do relate to the man-made chemicals where entheogens invoke the divine within. Psychedelics was coined in the 50s by um, Humphrey Osmond and um, um, others. Uh, in, 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 from the Greek, it meant to manifest the mind. And so there, again, is this difference between the mind, which is very much an egoic construct and very much a Western thing. We have incredible amount of uh, mind expansion in Western culture at the moment. Since the 1960s, like 50 years on from some of the first wave of the LSD exploration, we have now, uh, you know, non-linear social networks, distributed consciousness, cloud computing. You know, we are um, all on screens and we're fragmenting our consciousness and we understand what it means to sort of timeshare and to split our consciousness in many ways. There is a whole medicalization, uh, you know, of people that are... Um, on many different substances, especially in Western countries like the US, um, people are basically in altered headspaces everywhere. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it is healthy or that it is for the best outcome. But we almost understand mind manifesting is just the mind. But the plants and the entheogens are asking us to go deeper. They're asking us to go down to a heart-based level and to understand that there is this divine within or this spark of life or essentially a soul, something which is more than just the mind involved in the dynamic of being human and how we have right relationship and interact with what we are embedded in, which is another organism, you know, a macro organism of planet Earth. So why did you make your film, Aya Awakenings? What inspired you to, to uh, take on this, this endeavor? Because, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work to make a film and a lot of resources and uh, want to understand what your, what your goal is with this, this documentary. Well, it goes back to the start of my journey with Ayahuasca, which was in 2006 I went down to the Amazon uh, to write an article, it was a freelance article, about this rise in global shamanism and the interest of Westerners in Ayahuasca. And that became the book, uh, Ayah Awakening as a Shamanic Odyssey. And there was so many, uh, you know, I had incredible profound experiences of my own. I, I drank with over 24 different curanderos or shamans. And I basically tried to map the territory of what was happening in Peru and around the, uh, the Western interface, this mashup of cultures between old world and new, what the supply and demand of shamanism meant, what was happening with the Western money coming in and buying the spiritual experience and what people were getting out of that. And I interviewed all the curanderos, I interviewed all these Westerners, I had my own experiences. And so much of that was so profound and transformative for me that in uh, making the book eventually, a few years after the book came out, uh, we had the opportunity to make a documentary adaption of the book. And so um, that began with uh, the director and editor and my partner, Tim Parrish, who I've worked with creatively for, for over a decade. And he was the one who instigated the work on the film. And what we've attempted to do in the film, and I think we do it quite successfully, is we're using the narration from the book, and it's a very truncated, um, overarching, it's sort of like the hero's journey from Joseph Campbell. There's an initiation, departure, initiation, and return. And we take the narration from the book to give people an emotional anchor and the experience and explain what ayahuasca is. And then we have um, the visionary components. We have uh, a lot of video that we've shot and we've sourced. 
and we explain what the ceremonies are like with ayahuasca and with the shamans, but then we go in on the interior journey into the terra incognita or the invisible landscape of the mind, and we use some quite cutting-edge algorithms and software to recreate some of the effects and visionary components that people see on ayahuasca journeys. And many, many people that have seen the film have said that it is the closest thing you can get to an ayahuasca experience on the inside by watching this film. So I like to think it's a shamanic artifact in that we've taken the narration from the book, which was from the raw experience with the emotional narrative, the visionary video experience, and the incredibly intricate soundscapes with the Ikaros or the powerful shamanic medicine songs of the shamans and the soundscapes of the jungle, and it synesthetically combines to become something greater than some of its parts. So it's basically a catalyst. When you watch this film, it catalyzes a reaction in the viewer. It is, it, it, you cannot help but be affected by it. It's a very powerful film. And so in some way, I feel like we've trapped a little bit of the essence of the experience in the film to make it come alive again. And so in that way, it's not just talking about ayahuasca. It takes people on a first-person journey into the Amazon, into the heart of consciousness itself. So it's a very valuable uh, cultural artifact to be sharing with the global tribe. Wow, that's fantastic. I can't wait to watch it. Uh, it I, you know, there's so many moments where I kind of wish I could uh, step into my mind and take some digital photos of some of the things that I've seen in the ayahuasca visionscape. One uh, visionary artist who I think really captures the um, visionary realms so well uh, is Alex Gray. And it's kind of interesting when I look at his paintings, I can tell which ones are um, ayahuasca visions and which ones were something else. Um, but, but I would say that some of the things that I've, uh, some of the work that I've seen him come out with looks so much like some of the visions that I've uh, experienced myself. So, so I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys have done with the, uh, it's, it's a very good point. And people like Alex Gray, who is, you know, the, the great godfather of the visionary art movement. And there is a movement of hundreds of artists worldwide now. And the difference between a normal, um, you know, surrealist artist and a visionary artist, I guess, in this sense, like Alex Gray. There's other ones like the Peruvian Andy Debonati. Oh, he's uh, Android, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Android, Android Jones, Jones has done he's some. He's my favorite. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, it's hard what to they, choose. They're all so good. <laughs> what they are doing is that they are having visionary experiences with amphigens or, however, you know, endogenously, and they are encountering either entities or projections, but they're in realms which are valid consensual realms that medicine people and shamans across the world say, look, this realm exists. There is more than just this physical dimension. Basically, they're saying the web of life extends onto the astral and onto larger planes of existence. And it is a science. It is the science of curanderismo. And when these artists go in, like what we've done in the film, is that they are mapping the territory and they are bringing back the images and anchoring the experience in a similar way almost to what the Aboriginal Australians do with their dot matrix paintings. They say that they're not uh, representing the landscape. They are capturing the landscape in a way that comes alive. And it's almost like holographic. So when these visionary artists anchor this material, when people see it, they're not they're seeing something which is a catalyst and a trigger, and it's it's giving us um, a cultural artifact in the West to understand because unless we have a vocabulary and an understanding of the potential of these realms, then they're invisible to us. And so the more we can see them and share them and trade the un even just the under you don't have to believe they exist, but to understand conceptually that they could exist is the first step to integrating and for this generation to step into those realms and to learn how to map and to navigate them, to reclaim 
the, the invisible landscape for, for our generation and our culture. Do you believe these realms exist? In, uh, un undoubtedly. I've been to these realms many times, and it's an extension of nature. I don't believe there's anything uh, esoteric per se about it. I think it's just that we have been eroded and denuded in the mechanistic universe since the Industrial Revolution or so, and we've forgotten. We've forgotten this connection. And all of this rise in global shamanism is pointing to not just the healing, underneath the healing is the connection. And when you have a connection to spirit and to nature and the web of life, I mean, I just think that the bleeding edge uh, technologies, you know, are also leading us into the same direction as shamanism, whether that's, you know, quantum physics or, you know, advanced um, internet technologies or, virtual you know, it's reality, like maybe? virtual reality. I mean, you know, okay, here's the thing. Originally, there's a saying, there's a few scientists which have coined this term, there's validated reality, there's virtual reality, and there's vegetal reality. And vegetal reality is the original matrix, and it's like plant broadband. The plants can communicate with, amongst themselves using, you know, the root systems and the mycelial networks under the ground, and they are a larger synergistic cooperative organism which exhibits full-spectrum consciousness. It exhibits an ability for different species of plants and trees to synergistically communicate almost in a network. A lot of the, um, the understandings and terminology around the internet and around you know, the, the way that information can be um, contained and transmitted also applies to nature. And we're learning that as above, so below, these systems uh, are very similar to each other. And I think that, sh that sh shamanism is a technology. It's the vegetal technology, plant shamanism, and it should not be discriminated against just because it was brought to us by indigenous people. This is still Western imperialism and still, you know, colonialization that we're saying indigenous people are savages, essentially, because their technology is less than ours. Well, hello, they can communicate at a distance, they can heal at a distance, they can do things that we are only catching up with. And we should be looking at their technologies and their abilities and, you know, testing if they work, because this is the essence of science. Test it. Don't believe it. Try it. And if it works for you, decipher it, incorporate it into your vocabulary, into your scientific paradigm, because this is what the new paradigm is. It's a reclamation of the archaic revival and of the Western knowledge base and technology. So we have a sustainable future. It's the old and the new coming together into the now. So what was the most visionary out of this world experience that you've had? How did it affect you? And what did you learn from it? Well, I'll, I'll give you the, the most visionary experience. I, I mean, I've had many levels of visions, and you've got to understand as well that the Westerners uh, in general are very enamored with visions because this is, again, the mind wanting to know and to see. And we mentioned vir virtual reality before. It's almost as if that in the West we don't believe things unless we can see them. You know, if, if you can feel them, it's not enough. You think you did this like hallucination. But if you can see them, you think there's something there. So a lot of the visionary component of the ayahuasca experience may be projections from the subconscious um, codified into a visionary archetype that is speaking to you and meaningful to you. I've had those type of archetype things happen. I've seen the classic jaguars. I've seen ancient peoples. I've been interstellar journeys. But what we document in the film Ira Awakenings was a very specific encounter with uh, a deeper level of reality. And it wasn't through using the modality of ayahuasca. It was actually smokable 5-MeO-DMT. 
which was used by a shamanic practitioner in the jungle at the time. And in that experience, it was the classic, I underwent the classic white light tunnel uh, experience that many people report who have had near-death experiences, this sort of feeling of, you know, the lower bardos transcending to a great reservoir of primal consciousness or what you could call the source. Um, it's felt to me like the, I call it the super hadron collider of hyperspace. It was really a vast realm again, where it's not about seeing because essentially it is an incredible, it was an incredible expanse of white light with subtle variations in a tunnel oscillating effect. But emotionally and intuitively and vibrationally, my energy body was being read like the, um, a laser in a CD, reading a CD and the information stored in me was merging my wavefront with the source. And what I understood from that intuitively, and this is what we all put our own words onto it, when you have a mystical transcendental experience, it is very personal to you. It doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. But we need to develop our own language and understanding and contextualization of it. And it just seemed to be that in this experience, I had this um, overlap and merging with the Godhead, which I would consider the source. And it, it's very close to what they say when the drop rejoins the ocean. But here's what I learned from it. It felt like there was uh, larger, larger scales of um, with larger rhythms at work, wherein basically almost like the condensation cycle of moisture in nature, that when the drop comes down and rains and hits the ground and then goes back up again, there's this eternal return. There's this eternal mystical return back to whence we came. And in that place, I melted into oneness of unity consciousness with the source. But I did it consciously every second of the way. And I was opening and it was reading me and I was reading it. And I was remembering that I was it and it was me. And what I learned from it was that the entire journey of our lives, we build up an electrical spiritual charge from every action we do, every thought we have, every kindness, every hurt, every every sort of every step on our life path affects our energy body and we store these charges as memories as traumas as um, experiences but they have a vibrational register and when i was merged back into the vibrational uh you know docking port of the godhead it was absorbing and in some sense you could even say eating or retaking in all my meanness all my memories and what i got from that is that the web of life continues and on a cosmic inner space level i believe that the source incarnates on the explicate level down here as form for a reason and that the the culmination of our life's path is essentially to feed the source i mean the source is a perpetual engine of creation creating and growing and it grows through incarnating and then our incarnation goes back in the cycle of life and feeds the godhead it was this beautiful reciprocal um experience that was the most profound experience of my life and it was captured on the exterior flesh body in the film eye awakenings and we have recreated the interior visuals as closely as we could to take you on that journey so i invite you to watch the film eye awakenings 
and you'll get a deeper understanding of what I'm talking about. Fantastic. So we've about uh, reached the end of our time together. I'd love to ask you, Rack, how can we best stay in touch with you? I'm all over social media. You can find me on www.rakrazam.com. That's R-A-K-R-A-Z-A-M.com. Uh, the website, as you mentioned at the start, iraya-awakenings.com. Uh, and I've got uh, Twitter accounts and Facebook uh, accounts mainly in my name. So um, I'm very accessible and I do sort of, um, I do connect with the Global Tribe quite regularly. I do a podcast show called In a Perfect World, which has a lot of interviews with uh, leading consciousness researchers and shamanic figures. And uh, I'm always looking forward to you know, connecting with the tribe. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And you have a beautiful day. Thank you very much. Aloha. Thank you so much for joining us today. People and resources mentioned during this episode can be found in the show notes at entheonation.com slash eight. If you enjoyed this episode, I so appreciate it if you would take the time to rate and review this show. This increases our visibility in the iTunes marketplace and helps this information reach more people out there in the world who need it. If you would like to get the transcript of this episode and more consciousness-raising content delivered straight to your inbox, simply text Entheonation, that is E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Simply reply to the SMS with your best email and never miss an episode. Now, I'm going to end this episode with an amazing track called Jaguar Dreaming by Liquid Bloom from the album Heart of the Shamans. Kick back and enjoy.
Tchau, 